Hello, dear friends. When watching people who are speaking online from their home computers, I think it's always interesting to see what's in the background. You know what books they have on the shelf, or you notice the artwork on the wall, or the way that they've decorated their home. You'll learn a little bit more about them. Well, I've been speaking from my church office, and I, I haven't given you much to look at. But you've no doubt wondered about the picture behind me. It's a, it's a poster of the Theological Library of the Strayhof Monastery in Prague. This beautiful library established in the late 17th century is full of Baroque frescoes on the ceiling, and it houses some 200,000 theological books. I haven't been there, but it's definitely on my bucket list. When I walk to my desk, I find that this poster makes me feel particularly studious. Well, I put up another picture of the library on the screen. You can see what an amazing place it is. I could easily spend a few hours here. Book lover that I am, I like to surround myself with books because it makes me feel smarter than I actually am. Let's now approach the proclamation of God's word with prayer. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may with joy hear what you say to us today. Amen. We have been studying the words of the risen Jesus to the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, and we've heard him speak to the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. Today, we listen to what Jesus says to the church gathered in the city of Sardis. At the same time, we listen for his word for us today. Sardis was situated in a fertile river valley at the foot of a mountain, and it was a converging point of several inland roads making it a fairly busy center of trade and traffic. The city was originally the ancient capital of the kingdom of Lydia and was quite wealthy and powerful. But by the first century, it had declined considerably. Sardis was destroyed by a devastating earthquake in the year 17 AD and was rebuilt with the help of the emperor Tiberius. Today, uh, if you go there, you can see the ruins of a temple dedicated to Artemis, a Roman bath and gymnasium complex, and the remains of a third century synagogue, the oldest synagogue discovered outside Palestine. Nothing is known about the origins of the church at Sardis, but it, it seemed by all appearances to have been thriving. It is to this church that Jesus now writes, and it's perhaps the harshest of all the letters. In general, Jesus first compliments a church before he criticizes it, but here the Lord doesn't mince words. So reading from the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, 
but you are dead. The church of Sardis had made a good name for itself, a good reputation that spread far and wide. It was well regarded in the city and its neighborhood, and it was no doubt known by other churches for its vitality. Outwardly, this church appeared to be very healthy. No false teaching seemed to be taking root in its fellowship. You don't hear in the letter anything about Balaam or the Nicolaitans or Jezebel. Didn't seem to be undergoing persecution. The congregation may have been large for the day and attracting more and more members. Perhaps it was fairly well off financially. At least there's no word of impoverishment. Perhaps it was a fellowship that was socially fashionable to belong to. We can imagine it was engaged in all kinds of activity. By all appearances, this church was full of life. But outward appearances can be deceiving. This outwardly successful church that looks so alive was actually a spiritual graveyard. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, says Jesus. The eyes of the Lord could see right through the, the thin veneer of this congregation. Their Christian activity was a sham, a show. Their works were an empty shell. There, were, there was a lot of church activity, but no inward reality. Their works did not begin to fulfill God's purpose. It seemed that they were trying to impress people or themselves, but not God. It seems their deeds were incomplete in the sight of God because their motivations were defective. In the last analysis, God is the only one we have to please. It's what God thinks of us that matters most. It's before God that we live, before whom we stand and to whom we must give account. And when we outwardly do deeds in his name, but with a view to impressing others, going after applause for such things, gaining a good reputation in the community so as to pump ourselves up, then we are only playing a game. It's all show and no inner substance. Our Lord can see right through that sort of thing. The risen Jesus sees beneath the surface, knows our motives and thoughts and desires. He can see how much reality there is behind our professions and how much life behind our facades. The, the good name, the, the reputation of Sardis was a lie. The church was filled with Christians in name only. They had a name for being alive, but they were dead, spiritually dead. Their reputation did not reflect reality. As we have explored the letters to various churches mentioned in Revelation, we have noted that there are several distinguishing marks of a true church. Any church worth its salt will have a passionate love for God. It will bear up under pressure and, if need be, suffer. A true church will hold fast to the truth and will seek holiness of life. But now I would add, a true church is a church that is real or authentic. Its Christian activity, its good works, its expressions of worship are not just a sham or a show. It all comes from the heart and from a desire to please God alone. God has always had a problem with people who are outwardly religious and put on a good, pious show, but whose motives are anything but pure. The prophets, Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all were at pains to tell the people of Israel that God did not appreciate solemn prayers, songs of worship, and the offerings of sacrifices when they didn't mean it, when these things were not an honest expression from their heart. As the Lord himself lamented, this people draws near with their mouth and honors me with their lips while their hearts are far, far from me. 
Jesus quoted the saying against the Pharisees. They gave alms and said prayers and disfigured their faces to fast in order that it might appear to others that they were highly spiritual, but their hearts were not in it. And this unreality Jesus harshly condemned. Reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, so that the outside also may become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and of all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Timothy had come upon this same spiritual phenomenon in, in Ephesus, where Paul wrote to him about some who were holding the form of religion but denying the power of it. All show, all ceremony, and no substance. Well, this ugly tendency can be traced right through the Bible. You can trace it right through the history of the Christian church. This tendency has a name, hypocrisy, a Greek word in origin meaning literally to play a part on a stage or to act in a drama. It's to make believe, to assume a role which isn't real. It's the let's pretend a religion. And so outwardly, a church can appear to be very holy, but inwardly be full of moral corruption. And such was the state of the church at the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And it's why the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin called out the hypocrisy within the church. The church was dying inside, and it needed a radical change of course. It needed to rediscover and live the gospel. Hypocrisy, of course, can permeate the life of a church today. It can invade our worship. We can have the best music, the finest choir, the greatest congregational singing, the best band. We can belt out hymns and praise choruses while our minds wander aimlessly and our hearts are far from God. We can mouth our prayers to God, rattling off the Lord's Prayer without giving a thought to what we are doing. We can perform acts of Christian service in Jesus' name while inwardly hoping others will take notice of our charity and appreciate how good we really are. We can be the busiest church in the community, making other churches look dull and boring in comparison, but it can all be an exercise in futility, having no power to transform people's lives. It can become busyness for busyness' sake or busyness for the sake of enhancing our fine reputation in the community. In this case, our church life centers around ourselves and not God, and that is deadly. As we have seen with Sardis, a church that looks alive can be, in reality, a spiritual graveyard. So how do we avoid becoming a dead church like that? How can we keep from such hypocrisy and avoid playing church? Jesus' message to the church at Sardis is instructive, for he says, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and obeyed and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. First of all, he says, Wake up! You may be dead in your faith, but with God, all things are possible. You can live again. Wake up before it's too late. 
If you will not awake, I will come upon you like a thief in judgment and will remove your lampstand. A dead church can no longer reflect the light of Christ's love. Its lampstand might as well be removed. A dead or dying church better wake up to reality or be extinguished. It's as simple as that. Wakefulness, alertness. This is what Jesus counsels our church or any church that wants to be real and authentic in its faith. So let us then wake up to hypocrisy in our church and in our own lives, confessing those times when our profession of faith doesn't match our deeds or when our outward appearance or action doesn't square with our hearts. Catching ourselves when we start playing church without the heart engaged, being alert to the times when we care too much about what other people think or how we look, seeking the approval of others and not God. That's the starting point for dealing with dangerous hypocrisy. So may you and I wake up to it and be alert to it and confess it. Wake up, said Jesus to the church at Sardis, strengthening what remains. That is, build on whatever is left among you and in you that is real and true and authentic. Encourage and pray that everything you do is done out of a pure heart. And then secondly, Jesus said, remember what you have received and heard and obey that. So what was he referring to here? I mean, what did they receive and hear and are to keep? Well, the gospel certainly, but many scholars seem to think that what they received and are to remember is none other than the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the great gift that men and women receive when they respond to the gospel with the hearing of faith and obedience. Receive the Holy Spirit, said Jesus to the disciples on Easter day. Peter told the crowds on the day of Pentecost to repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God indwelling our hearts, bringing his reality there. He's God living inside of us. The Holy Spirit is the great life giver, and that's exactly what a dead church needs to hear. Remember what you received. Remember the Holy Spirit in you. It's the Holy Spirit who can breathe into our formal worship until it comes alive and real. It's the Holy Spirit who can put living flesh on spiritually dead bones. It's the Holy Spirit who can enliven our dead works and make them vibrant again. It's the Spirit who can save a dying church and make it, make it a place where lives are being transformed. He can fill us and work in our, in our work and in our, in our worship with his vital presence, making us spiritually alive. Could it be that we're so busy in our church work that we're leaving the Holy Spirit out? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, says Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. He dwells within us, but does he fill us? We possess the Spirit, but does the Spirit possess us? Only when the church is filled with the Spirit can we overcome spiritual death and live a life of authenticity. So how do we become filled with the Spirit? By surrendering ourselves more completely to him. By, by praying for him to transform our lives, by looking for him to do a mighty thing in us. A church is raised from the dead when believers trust themselves completely to Christ and to receive his living spirit. They hold nothing back from him. They all say with one accord in the spirit of prayer, spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. 
Melt us, mold us, fill us, use us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. In this letter to the church at Sardis, the Lord of the church makes two promises to those who refuse to play the hypocrite. First, says Jesus, he who overcomes will be dressed in white. Those who are faithful and conquer will be clothed in white robes. The color white is a symbol of purity, of victory, of joy, of celebration. Those who live authentic Christian lives will be rewarded both now and in heaven, for they will walk with Jesus and experience his victory over all that is evil and unclean. They will know the joy of eternal life. And secondly, their name shall not be blotted out of the book of life. The Bible tells us that God has a book. It's a symbol, of course, but God keeps a register in heaven, as it were, in which the names of his people are enrolled. It's the book of the living, and the names of the spiritually dead are nowhere to be found in it. Is our name written in God's book of life? We can have a name among people for being alive, like the church at Sardis, and still have no entry in God's book of the living. Our name can be on a church register without being on the divine register. Our name can be included in the baptism, confirmation, and wedding registers of a church and yet be missing from the book of life. Jesus told his disciples to rejoice that their names were written in heaven. Is ours? Christ's gracious promise to the Christian conqueror, the one who refuses to play the hypocrite, is that he will not blot his or her name out of the book. It does no good to play act as a Christian. It does no good if we have a reputation for being spiritually alive, but are actually dead to God. It's not enough to be a Christian in name only, soiling ourselves with an inordinate concern for worldly success and human applause. We must possess the inward reality and purity which are known and pleasing to God. Filled with the living spirit of Christ, we can conquer. We shall wear white clothes and walk with Christ in heaven and our names will be indelibly inscribed in the book of life. And we will be acknowledged before God and the angels. Be real, be authentic. Let your outward actions and appearances reflect the inward reality of a heart in love with God. So may it be. Amen.